Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today. This series is entitled, Glorious Disruption, When Jesus Shows Up and Turns Everyone's World Upside Down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around, and maybe even upside down, because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying for our joy and amazement in Christ. Let's worship together. Well, friends, we are um, started the series in the Gospel of Luke. I've called it Glorious Disruption. And this morning, my prayer is that God would disrupt the disgrace in our lives. And so I've called this morning uh, Disrupted Disgrace. And so I'm going to ask you at this point in time to think for a moment of what in your life brings you shame. And uh, I want to remind you of this because when we're worshiping um, together and we're coming together as a church family for the reading of Scripture and the teaching of the Word of God, we do this intentionally. It's actually a demonstration as the people of God, as a church family, that we believe this is the Word of God and that when God's people gather and hear the Word and study the Word together, the Spirit of God who has inspired the Word changes the people of God and conforms us to the likeness of God. So listening to a sermon is not an academic lecture. It is an event. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, whereby God intends to glorify Jesus. He intends to disrupt our lives with grace. And so I I do want you to be honest about that this morning. Would you open up your heart right now, this day, for a disruption by God in your heart? Uh, For those of you who are here in this building, you came here today not by accident. It might have been all your plans and it might have been for other reasons that you ended up being here today. But I believe God is sovereign over the details of our lives. If you are at home today uh, for various reasons why you may not be here and you're watching online, I believe God has sovereignly orchestrated you to be listening at this moment. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God works in our lives to disrupt us in grace? And uh, we were just singing a song which says, I am in awe of you. And one of the things in the Gospel of Luke that you will see, one of the repeated phrases for you songwriters and painters and poets, you artists who are doing your art and Scripture, one of the regularly repeated words in the Gospel of Luke is they were amazed. Uh, in, In one verse in particular, there are five different words for amazement. I think it's Luke 5.25 or 26, that verse that we have up there, where the word amazed is said. And they're amazed at A, what God is doing uh, through the person of Jesus Christ, but B, they are amazed at what God is doing in their context at that time through Jesus Christ. I don't want you to leave here this morning not amazed. I don't want you to leave here today not amazed. I'm not talking about being amazed by the music. I'm not being amazed... 
um, that this little church exists, not being amazed by somebody greeted you, didn't greet you, talked to you, whatever. I want you to be amazed today that God knows you and today put His finger upon your life right now and called you to repentance. Called you to a disruption. And we're going to talk about the subject of repentance today. And uh, John the Baptist has this great ministry. We, we are going into the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And, and as we come to the ministry of John the Baptist, you will see that John's message, his ministry, is to call people to repent, to turn away from their idols, to turn away from their sin. Today, to turn away from your shame and turn to the One that God has sent John to introduce. The Lamb of God. The Agnes Dei that we just sang about. So, uh, so that we're not just doing another sermon, I'm going to ask you to pray. So pray, please. Take a moment. I'll lead you in prayer. And pray over your heart. And maybe if the only thing you can say in your heart is, God, I hate it when pastors do this. Pray it. And let God do a gracious work today in all of us. So let's pray together. Father, the Scriptures tell us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, can pierce between both bone and marrow. You, by the Word, Judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's my heart. There are things that I see needing change and there are things that I don't see that only you see that need to be changed. But there is no doubt, dear God, that the church needs to change. There is no doubt that the world needs to be changed. And You always work one heart at a time. We thank You, dear God, that when Jesus' blood ran red, our sins washed white. And so we want to look at our hearts, but not to look at our hearts so that we might be overwhelmed by what needs to be done but that we might look at Jesus and realize what needs to be done has already been done. And that the changes that need to be done that are bigger than us can be done only by one. The Lamb. Who was slain, who is now the Lion of the tribe of Judah who reigns on high. Who loves us with an everlasting love. And lives to make us complete. So work. Come work. Have a little conversation with each of us, we pray. Through the Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as we uh, come into the Gospel of Luke, you will see that Luke and John uh, the Baptist uh, immediately go to a call to repentance. Call to a deep change of heart and life. And as we move into repentance, we realize that we live in a culture that desperately needs repentance. Let me read you a quote. I saw this last week from Michael Haken. Michael is uh, the director of uh, the John Newton House at Oxford. 
and uh, he is um, also uh, Canadian, so I have connections with him, so that's partly why I saw this quote. And um, I also have uh, the Canadian evangelical world is pretty small, so I also have a sense of why he's writing this. And he's writing it out of deep pain for the church. And so listen to what he says. He says, we as evangelicals need many things. We need wisdom for the public square. We need more attention to ecclesiology and ongoing passion for missions. We need to recapture our unity in Christ, but most of all, we need repentance and revival. Isn't that true? This is what he writes. He says, we need to repent of our sins, of our arrogance and pride, of our hunger for political and ecclesial power and not for holy lives, of our grieving the Holy Spirit, of our bickering and slandering one another, of our fascination with gossip fed by social media, of our passion for lesser things at the expense of love for Christ and love for the lost and love for the church. We need to repent of our prayerlessness and our trust in the realm of politics. Simply put, we need to know the power of the Spirit of Pentecost that was experienced at Pentecost and again in the 18th and 19th centuries. We desperately need revival. We desperately need it. Now I want to add to what Michael Haken is saying as he talks broadly about the need for the church to be rescued from the culture, from the seduction, to have the... The zeitgeist, as as German theologians would write it, the spirit of the age penetrating the church. The reality is that whenever God begins to do a new thing, He begins with one person at a time. Often moving one person to pray. Often, I think in England and Wales in the Welsh revival, moving a couple of women to pray. I love it when I pull in the parking lot on Sunday morning and Ralph, who was praying this morning's truck, is parked in the corner. And I know, he doesn't even look up and wave because he's praying with several people from our church who are praying for you, praying for uh, our church and our witness, our holiness, our growth, our leaders. And so it usually starts with us praying. But here's what you and I need to know is that spiritual breakthroughs, we're talking about grand breakthroughs, begin with repentance. And repentance in the Bible almost always begins with brokenness, grieving. There is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, the Apostle Paul says. Repentance begins when God reveals to the brokenhearted that He is still radically for us in Jesus Christ. And then we realize that repentance the whole way through is a gift of God. It's a gift of grace. It's not something we do to give, get God on our side. It's something we can do because God is radically for us in Jesus Christ. And so we sing all morning long and we pray all morning long to remind you that God is for you in Jesus Christ. This is not meritorious effort. This is the God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that you might dare to believe it enough so that you might look into the darkest recesses of your corner uh, corner of your life and your heart. Those shadowy areas of your life. Those disappointing parts of your marriage those things in your family that grieve you, that cause you to tremble, that you might dare to look there and dare to go there because God will never leave you nor forsake you. 
right? And we, we know going into the Gospel of Luke in this series on glorious disruption that we are daring to pray dangerous prayers, believing to be God to be way better than anything we fear. Sufficient for all these things. And so there are things in your life, my life, in the church right now that we need to say, God, help us. There are blind spots that we have to say, God, show us. But here's the good news. Repentance isn't something you have to will up and work up. Repentance is a gift when you look to Jesus and you trust the power of God and the Spirit. So listen to a couple of verses. Acts 5, 30, 31. As uh, the early church leaders. And I love it. Peter and, Jane, and, and, and John, they begin to preach. And as you hear them preach in the, gospel, in, the, in the book of Acts, which we'll study later, think of Peter. Aren't you glad Peter's there? And Peter announces the great news of the Gospel that grace is greater than all my sin. And so Peter writes, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at this right, at His, sorry, at His right hand as leader and Savior to what? Give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And so in the beginning of the book of Acts, written by Luke, who begins the Gospel of Luke with an announcement of repentance, it's like darkness gets broken with light right off the bat. It was glorious. Anybody up early this morning? Right? If you want to see some good pictures, talk to Kale at the back there doing sound. Kale was here taking pictures over the lake as the colors, the hues of pastels came up on the lake. Darkness being broken by light. Death being broken by life. Shame being broken by the love and the grace of the Gospel. That's what's going on. So Peter talking to the, his own people who killed their own Messiah. And he says, God has exalted Him to the right place so you who crucified Him might be forgiven. Friends, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. You ever thought that? Not too long after talking about the Gospel, Peter, and the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles, he writes in, Acts chapter eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, what? God has granted repentance that leads to life. What's going on as the Gospel goes out? It's not the burden of religion placed on the shoulders of people, but rather the grace of God breaking through to undeserving Gentiles and Jews, Christ crucifiers and idol worshippers, and God in Christ granting them the power to overcome their idolatry, their sin, all the soul sickness that was plaguing the world. Light penetrating the darkness. Aren't you glad it's a gift of God? So if you hear me say anything... This morning in this sermon, as I invite you to invite God to produce repentance in your life, it's a gift. It's grace. You can go there. You might have to go for a long walk in Carver Park. A quiet ride in your car. 
You, you can come here anytime and sit by the lake and say, God, search me and know me. Know my heart. See if there be any unclean thing in me. And lead me, lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. Are you ready for that today? Are you longing for that? Let's go into the text of Scripture. I want to show you a couple of things in the story of Zacharias. Here's, here's how the Gospel of Luke begins. It begins with long, dark, painful days of spiritual barrenness. And, and you have seen this in the Bible regularly, and we'll talk about this now, but the physical barrenness of a couple not having children is often a picture of spiritual barrenness in the life of the people of Israel. Abraham and Sarah coming out of idolatry and a new day breaking as God makes glorious promises to covenant with Abraham and his seed that all the nations would be blessed. In the life of Hannah and Elkanah in the book of Samuel, pleading and crying out to God for a child and her husband saying stupid things like husbands do. Am I not better to you than five sons? And her answer is no. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Aching. And, all, and we know that in was coming a, the first David, anticipating a new David coming. And we come into the Gospel of Luke and Luke begins with that kind of darkness. Now let me just point out a few things from the first uh, several verses that um, we read this morning. Verses 5 to uh, 7. The first thing was that there were, these were, at this point in time in Israel's political history, very dark days. And so I want you to realize that Luke, you know, Luke is very careful in identifying the leaders, the political leaders and the times. He's carefully documenting what's going on so that he might understand how the gospel was able to disrupt the whole world through a, a Nazarene a, a Messiah from Galilee and a group of Galilean fishermen. How did this happen? He's carefully documenting how Jesus turned lives upside down and how Jesus turned the world upside down. So he gives us the names and the places and the time and the events and the genealogies. He gives us the details. But he's not just giving us all the details for no reason. He begins with darkness. So when we hear in Luke chapter 1, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, we need to hear it like it would have been heard at that time. That was a dark political time. Michael Card writes, when we read that it was in the days of King Herod, a chill should run down our spine. Quite simply, Herod was a monster. He came to power amid a bloodbath with the help of two Roman legions in 37 B.C. He murdered both of his brothers-in-law and his beloved wife, Miriamne, as well as her mother. Just before his death, he gave an order that prominent citizens in Israel be gathered into the Hippodrome that the decree would be upon his death they would be executed so that there would be mourning in Israel. He's not the kind of guy to invite over for a party. He's not your best friend. Here he is, an egotist, a narcissist, 
who knows people hate Him, so that in order that people might grieve on the date of His death, He kills the people that are precious to them. In the days of King Herod. I realize it was a dark time politically. And I say that, that's how the Gospel of Luke begins, because let's, let's admit, there are many dark times politically in which Christians find themselves, and I would suggest we're in such times now. And I say that for the purpose not to be political, but to tell you there's nothing new under the sun. And God's arm is not too short that He cannot save. And that the hope of the world rests not in any political solution. The hope of the world rests in the risen, reigning Jesus Christ. We, the church, have a reason to exist now in dark times because we have the light of the world. We only have the hope of the world. Secondly, these were dark, cruel days for Israel spiritually. Herod was a brutal king and God seemed brutally silent. Brutally silent. So, in Luke chapter 1, we have Zechariah coming into the temple to pray. And as you begin to read Luke's Gospel, you realize that there's just these people who've been waiting for God to do something. And he comes to pray uh, and offer incense uh, and, and pray in the temple at, at the time of the evening and morning and evening offering on this day. And as he comes in, we're told in verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And as Luke writes the first couple of chapters, one of the things he points out to us is that there's a bunch of older people who have been spending their whole lives saying, God, when are you going to show up? And so if there's any senior saints here at Waterbrook who we love, and you've been praying that, keep praying please. Because God shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Anna, it says, <laughs> and widowed, I think they said for 84 years or something like that. or She was 84 years and a widow, but was only married seven years and said every day she was waiting in the temple. Simeon is in the temple waiting. And he was promised, he had a prophecy that he would not die till he saw the Lord's Messiah, Lord's Christ come. And so you've got these people waiting. You've got to realize that in this text of Scripture, um, Luke will have, the, the, the quote will come from the angel Gabriel that he will turn the hearts of the children towards their fathers, the hearts of the fathers towards the children. As he quotes that, that is a quote from the last chapter of the Old Testament. And so Luke begins after centuries of divine silence. How long, O oh Lord? Where are you, God? Oppression, injustice, He'll show corruption, just like at points in Israel's history, turning away from God, aching, godly people saying, where are you, God? You, and if you're there today, you, young person, if you're saying, God, God, where are you? Luke's Gospel is going to show you Him showing up for you. So that's where we begin. And then beyond that, there was not only dark, cruel days for Israel spiritually, but there were dark, cruel days for Zechariah and Elizabeth personally. And what I want you to see is that their infertility was a brutal experience. That's how Luke begins. He points to Herod, king of Judah, and then he describes 
um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it says in verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But what? They had no children because Elizabeth was barren and were both were advanced in their years. Now, you and I um, read that differently than the way it is meant to be read just because it doesn't hit us culturally like it was for them. But as we read through this and we see it later on in verse 25, what, is, what does Elizabeth say? The Lord has removed my, my shame or my disgrace. And you see, in, in biblical times, it was common for those good friends of yours, those Job advisors, to come along and tell you the reason why you have no children is because you have sin in your life. Well, it's, Luke is very clear at the beginning to say this. He's saying they were devout. They were godly. But you see, God's always up to something more than we're experiencing. Their barrenness was a picture of Israel's barrenness. And the breakthrough was God's breakthrough. But it was brutal. Listen, listen to uh, one commentator here, R. Kent Hughes. He says, In any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment, and for some an almost unbearable stress, but the burden cannot be compared to that borne by childless women in ancient Hebrew culture because barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. So I, I want you to picture for me how this Gospel of Luke begins. It begins with an elderly couple praying. Godly people praying. And everything around them seems like God has left the building. And God has abandoned their lives. Aren't you, aren't you glad Luke starts there? Because that's where a lot of us find ourselves. We start out Coming into, we don't get to the Christmas story, the, the story of Luke chapter 2, all the excitement, if we don't start out with the brokenness and the need and the ache and, and, and then one coming to call to repentance and God breaking through in all of this. But I want you and I to start out with this, that there are times when God's people feel distant, abandoned, darkness. It happens. And it's okay. Because God never forgets His people and God never breaks a promise. But He lets us wait and long and cry out. And so it's against the backdrop of that darkness that light breaks through. That life comes. So I want you to see the glorious disruption. This is a glorious new day of joy and repentance. So, a couple of things are going on in this text. I want you to see the glorious disruption and how it should read to us. First of all, here we have Zechariah, and we're told that he is a priest. Said he is a, a priest of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So here are two people from the priestly family who had responsibilities. And suddenly, it comes upon a drawing of lot, by lot that Zechariah is to go in and offer the prayers and the incense that uh, God had commanded one day. So Luke chapter 1, verse 8 says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord 
and burn incense. In the book of Exodus chapter 30, when the, the tabernacle was established, Aaron was given the responsibility that they would come into the temple and they would offer a burnt offering to God. And in the morning, we're told, it, it says this, every morning when Aaron dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord your God throughout your generations. And so they had this regular process of offering the sacrifice. And as they offered the offerings, they would burn incense. And incense in the Bible is a symbol of the prayers of God's people going up. And it's actually in this context, you want to think about it with Gabriel, it's a picture of the true temple where Gabriel himself is standing in the house of God, in the temple of God. And as, as on the earthly plane, Zechariah is praying... Gabriel is hearing from God the answer. He's standing in the very presence of God and sent to this one who is standing on earth in the presence of God. Isn't that great? And let that be a reminder of you that what's going on on earth is not disconnected with what's going on in heaven. And He hears and answers our prayers. Now just so you understand that in the Bible, the picking of lots, remember in the book of Acts when they... When Judas is gone, they, they have to pick another apostle who is a witness to the resurrection, the life teaching the resurrection of Jesus, and they draw lots. For them, drawing lots was not going to the lottery and it was happenstance. Drawing lots was an exercise of faith whereby God was making a decision. So we are meant to read in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that Zechariah was chosen by God to be in the temple on this day for this purpose. Tom Schreiner says Zechariah was one of 18,000 priests. And the offering was the greatest ministry of his priestly career. Given the number of priests, the offering would take place only once in a priest's life, and this was an incredibly special day in Zechariah's life. So just would you would you for a moment just Think with me. Here's Zechariah going in to offer the incense. He's praying. He is a godly man. He is a devout man, which means he is there doing his job, pleading with the Lord. And we don't get a clear statement of what he's praying. But we hear soon from Gabriel, your prayers have been answered. And so he is praying on behalf of a nation that is being oppressed. He's praying at a time when God seems distant and it's spiritually dark. And he's praying over his family life, which is suffering. His wife, who is sad. And any of us guys who are pastors will tell you that we're never up here doing our ministry without our families on our hearts. I'm preaching right now. I have family members Right now, when I was preaching about five minutes ago, I was thinking of my kids. So here's this man. Honestly, godly, sincerely, standing in the presence of God. Oh, thank God he hears. And he says in the heavenly realms, Gabriel, Gabriel, I got a message. This, this, 
man I chose because I knew he would pray this prayer and he's pleading with this and at this moment you go tell him that the silence is over, the darkness is breaking and I'm about to do something glorious. And so we're told here in this text of Scripture that his service is disrupted. His schedule has been disrupted. He's going in once in a lifetime. His service is disrupted by the angel Gabriel. And Tom Schreiner, again to quote him from his commentary, he says, the appearance of an angel signifies that the Lord is going to act in a significant way. Seeing an angel is no, no, by no means a common occurrence. When the angel shows up, when Gabriel shows up, it is a striking moment. In fact, here's what I believe is going on right at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Gabriel showing up would bring to mind for Zechariah, because you think, what's he praying? If you, you don't just pray whatever you want to pray as a priest going in. You carry the burdens of your heart, but you go through the routines of prayer. And coming in and praying a prayer of repentance would bring to his mind Daniel. And you'll see in the Gospel of Luke, son of man language show up in the Gospel of Luke. So Daniel is one of the prophecies that feeds into Luke's mind as he's come to understand fulfillment. Notice he's already used the word twice in this first part of the chapter, the word fulfill twice. And so as, as he talks about things being fulfilled, you and I, I think Zechariah would go back to the last time Gabriel appeared. Or one of the last times. The one of the few times that he appeared. I want you to take your Bible and go to Daniel chapter 9. If you can't find it, it's right after Ezekiel. If you can't find Ezekiel, well, use, a con- use your table of contents or something. Go to Daniel chapter 9, because in Daniel chapter 9, we have the angel Gabriel showing up in the life of Daniel. And I want you to hear how Daniel prays so that you might get a sense of how Zacharias was likely praying. Go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, and then I'll go back and read to you a little bit of his prayer. So, and, and I say this for a couple of reasons. So you can see how Zechariah was praying, but also if you don't know how to pray, this is how you can pray for yourself and God's people. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, it says, while I was speaking and praying, what was he doing? Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. He's praying over Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, the man who? Gabriel. So we have a Gabriel. We love our Gabriel. We have a Gabriella. Sorry, there you are. Up here, but this is big time Gabriel. Right? This is, listen to what it says. And the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the first vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of what? The evening sacrifice. It's actually similar to what's going on in Luke chapter 1. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding at the beginning of your pleas for what? Mercy. A word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that so sweet? God loves Daniel. God loves Zechariah. And God says, go. 
from the very throne room of God. Go speak to Him. The darkness is about to end. And so we get this announcement that comes in and I want you to see this gloriously disrupted <laughs> sorrow. That's what I'm going to say. His sorrow is now broken. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 13 and 17, as He comes and announces that they're going to have John the Baptist as a son, here's the, what it says. It says, and you will have joy and gladness and will rejoice at His birth. In the middle of this quiet place, overwhelmingly good news, your sorrow is going to be profoundly disrupted. By God. Aren't you glad for that? In the sending. This is how Luke reads. Friends, Luke is meant to tell you your sorrow is about to be profoundly disrupted by the coming of the Son of God. That's what's going on here. Historically, profoundly, eternally, God is going to do something. So let me show you several things here. And I say these things. Let me put it up front for you. You need to know these things so you can repent. Here's the first thing. Listen listen to how Gabriel talks to him. It says, And there appeared, verse 11, to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name what? John. Now later on, when he finally speaks after being made mute because he didn't believe the promise. So he's a godly guy, but he's not a perfect guy. In his despair, you know, he gets told, you will call him John. And later on he'll say his name is John and he'll no longer be mute. And the people go, John? Who in your family's named John? How are you going to carry on the lane? Nobody's named John. And that's exactly the point. The Gospel begins with a name change. Not what you typically expect, because John means God is gracious. That's how the Gospel of Luke begins. John means, so we got a Gabriel here and we got a John. We'll get to Kevin later in the, no, <laughs> on the prodigal son. <laughs> you didn't know the prodigal son's name was Kevin, but. <laughs> but John's name means God is gracious. How does the call of repentance begin? It begins with this. God is gracious towards repentant sinners. It doesn't tell you, fix your life and God might show up. It says God shows up because God is gracious. I just need to tell you that. Can you hear that? John. God is gracious to the Baptist. It's not accidental. God doesn't give names carelessly. So friends, here's the great news that's declared here. The Lord is gracious. Yahweh, Jehovah, will be gracious. That's the, this Gospel of Luke begins with a grace disruption. The glorious disruption of sin with with grace. You don't understand Luke's Gospel if you're not looking for grace. Grace towards sinners. Grace towards the nobodies. Grace to the weak and the broken and the aching and the confused. God comes in and says, come to Me. Secondly, the glorious disruption of His presence. Listen to what He says. You, you will call Him John. Verse 
14, and you shall have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great. What's it say? Before the Lord. So we hear that John the Baptist, God will be gracious. The Baptist begins as a forerunner. He'll be great before the Lord. And as you read what's going on here, he's not great simply before Lord Jehovah, but Lord Jehovah is coming to earth. He will go before and announce, Behold the Lamb of God whose blood runs red so your sins washed white. He's coming. And that's what you and I have to see, that Jesus is the Lord. God is coming in human flesh. The silence is broken. And it's not God just sending Gabriel. It's God sending His Son. Isn't that good news? What God comes for His people while they're yet sinners. Christ died for us. Glorious disruption of His presence. He will turn, verse 16, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The glorious disruption of power. God's power is not just another period of renewal. There were times of renewal down through Israel's history. This is not another time of renewal. This is a time of divine power coming in. This is a different moment. So we are told He will not drink wine. He'll be filled with what? The Holy Spirit, even from His mother's womb. So when Elizabeth goes to see Mary, what, does, what happens in her womb? He leaps for joy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in him. This is the forerunner of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then he says this, and what will John be used to do? And then what will happen through him? Down in verse 16, and he being filled with the Holy Spirit will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Who is the spirit and power of Elijah? The Spirit of God. He will come. This is the Elijah. This is, a, this is the quote from the end of Malachi. This is the end of the Old Testament. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. And He will come and turn families, fathers, sons, the unrighteous, turn them around and turn them back. This is where some of you hold deep shame. Your, your kids towards your parents, your families. That's where your pain is. And He's willing to come in there and do a new work. And He has the power to do what we can't... You know, wouldn't you fix things? Wouldn't you flip the switch, pop the pill, do whatever it takes to make it better? We don't hold that power, but He comes in to do within our hearts what has made it difficult for us even to relate to one another at the most basic level. And so we have this great day of power coming. I want to add one thing just for the sake of time. It's also a glorious disruption of God's pleasure. The very end of this text, what does Elizabeth say? Verse 24 and 25, After these days his wife conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked upon me to take away what? My shame and my reproach. Shame that didn't belong to her. Now, here's the great news of the Gospel. 
Elizabeth bore shame she didn't need to bear. You and I bear shame that we do deserve to bear. But Christ bore our shame on the cross. He has come to take away Elizabeth's Elizabeth's shame and, and He has come to take away our disgrace. That's what's going on here. He is for us. And so one of the reasons why we're afraid to look at sin and repent of sin and be honest about our past, one of the reasons why we're not open to confess our sins and we struggle with it is because of the shame and the indignity of it. Here's good news to you, friends. You no longer have shame because He delights in you, in His Son. Your sins are forgiven. He is for you. And if He is for you, who can be against you? Lift up your heads. Come on, lift up your heads. Christ has borne our sin. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great news? So here are four truths that you need to believe today that we will reiterate all the way through the Gospel of Luke. Number one, God is gracious towards sinners. God's people said. Number two, God is with you through it all. The Christ who is coming present will always be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always live to intercede for you at the right hand of God. We don't need Zechariah in the temple. We in that sense don't need Gabriel in the Holy of Holies because now the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where this is going. And He reigns over all. And He will pour out His Spirit. And it will go to the ends of the earth. Luke Acts. That's what's going on. On behalf of undeserving sinners who cry out to Him. And Christ is able to do far more than you ever asked or imagined through the resurrection power that is now within His people. And you and I need to hear this. Your shame is removed. And He loves you. He loves you. So we're told when Gabriel comes to Daniel, Daniel, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, I come to tell you, You are greatly loved. Gabe uh, texted John and I that verse this week and he said, make sure you tell me that verse. And I'm here to tell you that verse. And God so loved the world that He gave His own Son. The reason you can go and ask the Lord to turn your heart, do a radical disruption in your life, is because He loves you. And that love will never fail. What will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What will separate you? Absolutely nothing. So friends, that's how Luke begins. A glorious disruption of our hearts. Welcoming Christ to come and search. Come to change. Come to forgive. And come to make whole. Any volunteers? Okay, I guess I'm the only one. But um, Let's pray. Let's pray together. Ask the worship team to come. Um, worship team is going to lead you in two songs. One song is a song of repentance and one a song is a song of re- rejoicing. And so I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer. But let's, let's pray. Um, Father, as we come before You, we ask change our hearts. Help us to be in Elizabeth right now, 
and not as Zechariah. Zechariah said, how can this be? And he wrestled with doubt. Thank you, dear God, you were gracious to him even in his doubting. But Elizabeth rejoiced. The Lord has taken away my shame. We're told if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins, all our sins, and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Thank you, Father. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.